financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making this the number one show on the Voice America business channel. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. For the second hour, our sponsors are Crocodile Gold, Gold Bullion Development, North Atlantic Resources, Barkerville Gold, new gold producer, I might add, Great Panther Resources, a silver mining company that's doing very, very well with nearly $30 silver, and Millrock Resources. That's a company that uh, I like real well. That's a project generator. And maybe we'll get to our guest, David Skarika, and ask him if he has any thoughts on project generators if we get around to it. There's so many things to talk to David about. Uh, I'm glad to have you back, David. We left off at the break. Uh, and we talked a little, we were talking, I was talking more, and I want to get your thoughts on it now. Uh, John Perkins talked to us about this, this whole idea of the U.S. using its military to uh, bolster its reserve currency status. And he suggested that um, Saddam Hussein, one of the reasons we went after him was because he was insisting, he was sort of like, you know, sticking his tongue out at us, saying, we don't want your dollar anymore, you're, uh, we'll, we'll take... We'll take euros instead for for oil, and um, and person says that wasn't uh, to the liking of the U.S. So we said in our military. But do you have any thoughts about this possibility? And, I, and the reason I thought of it, Dave, is because you mentioned being from Canada. You said uh, your debt, uh, you know, annual deficit to GDP was never above seven percent. And uh, and I'm just wondering if we might not in the United States, as long as we have a military that can we can send around the world and threaten people. Uh, that we might not be able to keep this thing going for longer than you think. Any thoughts on that? There is some truth to that because I am not looking for like the U.S. dollar index to fall to twenty or something like that. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that you know, in right now it's roughly seventy-five, seventy-seven. Um, what I'm looking for is kind of this slow erosion and slow move out, and we're seeing that with, as you noted earlier in the show, China you know, building mines in Africa or India. The Indian Central Bank had a big, you know, purchase of gold uh, about a year and a half ago. And mm-hmm. I think that's what you have to look at, though. Because, okay, to invade Iraq is the one thing. But if a slew of countries, and this is being talked about at Davos this weekend, are going to mm-hmm. move away from the dollar. Now, maybe they'll still have 30 or 40 or 50% of the reserves in the dollar, but they're going to slowly move away. I think it's going to be difficult to, to, you know, do that with the might of the sword, like, like, for example, if India and China both start moving away, what are you going to do, go invade those countries with two and a half billion people? 
no. you know, and they have large militaries themselves. They're not Iraq. So mm-hmm. I think at some point people just get fed up and they really move around it, you know, away from it around the globe. And if you look at the countries that really have been buying dollars, like Canada, for example, the only reason that they're buying dollars is because their currencies are too strong in their mind and they're just yeah. selling their own currency and buying dollars to try to keep the Canadian dollar or British pound or, or Australian dollar depressed. Mm-hmm. So I actually don't see the military thing working because I just think there's going to be a, a big revolt worldwide. And I think we're seeing the start of it because we're looking at this tax deal that was made in the States. A lot of, you know, the political pundits like this, Obama's work at Republicans. But you have to think that angered a lot of the world. Because when you're in mm-hmm. Europe and you're in the U.K., and your government is slashing ta- taxes and, or sorry, slashing spending and raising taxes, try to get your fiscal house in order. And in the mm-hmm. U.S., they're doing the exact opposite because they're the reserve currency of the world. You're going to mm-hmm. be somewhat annoyed by this and want to get away from the dollar because you're going to think these people over there, they're not living within their means. They're living completely, you know, uh, above their means. And they're abusing their power as the world's reserve currency. Yeah, it's, it's certainly the Chinese have been chagrined by the U.S., uh, basically by the U.S. fiscal policy. And and, uh, and and you can't blame them. You know, when you think about it, uh, not only the fiscal policy, but the uh, money printing by uh, by Bernanke's Fed. Uh, the Chinese have maybe amassed $2.7 trillion of reserves over the years uh, by sending us stuff that's really real. And then, uh, you know, Bernanke can go out and, and create $2 trillion out of thin air almost overnight and, and debase all of that. So you can understand, I mean, this is the stuff you'd think that probably um, underlie, uh, you know, really serious conflicts between nations. We're trying to cheat each other. But, you know, David, you mentioned that uh, Canada and other these other countries are buying the dollar in part because they want to uh, they want to cheapen their own currency. It reminds me a lot of what we hear about the the Great Depression in the 1930s, a beggar thy neighbor currency devaluation where the countries reduced the value to try of their own currencies in an attempt to try to gain uh, advantages in international trade because their own economies were so weak. Uh, you know, everybody's trying to find some way to expand uh, their their economies. And uh, But how long can this go on? Sort of a currency devaluation, beggar thy neighbor currency devaluation. I guess until they run out of trees to cut down to print money. Well, of course, we don't <laughs> use trees anymore. It's all digital. Yeah, so. I, I really don't know how long this can go on. I think that it goes on until there's a determined effort to basically solve the fiscal and monetary problems in the country. And I think we're a long away from that, you know, until we get a, a guy like Volcker to come in and, and essentially, like, tighten the string. So I think it's going to go on. For, for, for a long time, because then on top of the current fiscal problems and the problems of the economy due to the financial crisis, we have these long-term structural problems of these unfunded liabilities, you know, that are coming down the pipeline. So, so then you're going to have to print money to pay that off. And I think the government would much rather debase the currency, create inflation, still give you your $1,000 a month check, say, you know, for Social Security, yeah, even though but it doesn't buy anything that anymore. That $1,000 doesn't buy anything anymore. They'd rather do that than actually just, like, cut the outlay. You know, mm-hmm. they, I think, you know, they'd rather inflate everything and have prices go up and, and have this illusion that things are fully funded. Well, yeah, okay, maybe they're fully funded, but they're fully funded in, in a currency that's completely worthless. I, th- I think yeah. they're much more uh, uh, like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, mean. David... Uh, 
Uh, don't know if we're having some audio problems here. Yeah, let's take a quick commercial break, and we're waiting for we lost David Strike. He'll be right back with us after a short commercial break. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass Bye. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. All right, we're back here with David Skarika. I want to apologize. We had some uh, uh, some technical difficulties. We took a break here until we got David back on with us. Well, David, uh, where did we leave off here? We were talking about uh, we were we were talking about the devaluation, uh, competitive devaluation. I guess it was, wasn't it? Um, could you pick up on that thought? Uh, how long can it go on? I think was what I asked you. Yeah, I think it can go on until. You really see the fiscal situation get so bad that you have to begin to tighten the string significantly in the United States. Mm -hmm. So I think we're still a little bit away from that. So I I think it can keep going on. And the problem is, is because U.S., no one really wants a strong currency anymore. And, you know, even currencies that have gone up, like the Swiss franc, the Swiss don't really want it where it is right now. But it's just, you know, they can't help it because there's inflows coming into a relatively small yet stable economy. So I think it can go on for the next three to five years at the very least. One thing I talk about in my book in The Great Super Cycle is, you know, again, the difference in me, maybe some of the other guests you've gone on, I'm more of an inflationist. Mm-hmm. And these inflation cycles, which I think we've been in since the year 2000, when commodities or 2001 when commodities bottom, tend to last 15 to 20 years. So I think we'll see the climax of this in the 2015 to 2020 period, which is about the time the cycle should be topping out for commodities, for interest rates, for, um, you know, for, for uh, real assets. If, if we continue to follow these 15 to 20-year periods, which, which is exactly what we've done since about the year 1900. So, see, this is where I'm a little different, different from most, because we're talking about the geopolitical situation and the currency situation, and I believe these are driving factors in the cycle. 
But I also believe that the, the cycle has a life of its own, and these things are all occurring within the cycle. So mm-hmm. a lot of times you can kind of ignore a lot of this noise and just kind of play where the cycle is. Like an analogy I made in 2008 when everything collapsed was in commodities, I told people this is what 1987 was to stocks in commodities in 2008. This is mm-hmm. just a short-term uh, crash, which is a great buying opportunity, and within the next two to three years we'll be hitting new highs on commodities. And then, boom, gold, silver, copper, all of these things are at or near new highs uh, less than two years later. And uh, I just did that purely based on where I thought I wa- we were in the long-term cycle. And where I think the U.S. is in its long-term cycles, I think it's getting near the end of the debt crisis. Because I don't care who you are. If you're the superpower, you have all this military that you're talking about. The rules of economics still apply. And where you're going to get your debt to GDP up to 140, 150%, which is where the U.S. would be in three to four or five years, if they keep running, you know, deficits like they are this year, at some point you're going to have a run on your bank, which is your currency. And I think that's basically uh, unenvoyable. And I have a chart in my book where I show the parabolic uh, curve, which is, a, you know, like a stock chart or a chart that goes straight up. And that's where we're entering on the debt level of the United States government. Well, we've certainly seen this, David. The debt level has exploded uh, we look at debt to GDP, and I would love to have somebody like, um, well, like a like a Robert Prechter, who's been on our show once, uh, to hear what you had to say and and uh, uh, encounter. It would be a, a delightful discussion. It would be very uh, civil, I'm sure, because both of you both of you guys are very civilized human beings. Uh, differences of opinion, of course, we've had we've had some other inflationists on here, David. You're not the only one. We've had, uh, of course, on the deflation side, quite a few people as well. I like. I really, I think this is a very important issue because uh, if you're going to inflate or hyperinflate, obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, there are going to be uh, some things that do much better than others. Uh, and if you're in a deflationary environment, uh, you know, gold and gold shares do very well. But uh, so, so it's not just an academic question. It's, it's interesting, a lot of fun. But let's get back to your book uh, more directly. Uh, you said the start of the problem. The debt problem, I, I, I believe that's what you're really you're saying, is the biggest problem is we have way too much debt. It cannot be serviced, or they're going to try to inflate it away by printing money. So when did this problem start? You talk about it in Chapter 1 in your book. Well, when I believe it started um, secularly is under Lyndon Johnson mm-hmm. and uh, the New Deal. Or, you know, so not the deal, that's right. Uh, well, I think the New Deal, sorry, under uh, FDR was when it, the inception right. of it. But when it really escalated is under Lyndon Johnson. Because Lyndon Johnson essentially tried to fight a war on poverty and a war on communism, especially in Vietnam, at the same time. And that's when the U.S. dollar really was a stable currency. It really was the reserve currency of the world. No country in the world could rival the United States in the 60s. It really was the richest, most prosperous country in the world. And what happened was, you know, you had these uncontrollable expenditures due to the creation of Social Security, the creation of Medicare, the creation of Medicaid. All of these things begin to escalate, and you had to pay for the war effort. So, of course, you took yourself off the gold standard in the 70s, and inflation had to catch up, you know, for that. So then we had this big inflation uh, spike in the 70s. And then the real big escalation was in the early 80s and under what I, uh, George Soros calls, and I expand on it with my own theories in the book, called the super bubble. 
And what the super bubble essentially was, was when as these emerging economies such as China and India began to re-enter the global economy, they knew their biggest consumer would be the United States. So what they essentially did was set up a system where they would pump money into the United States, try to keep interest rates low, try to keep the United States economy booming, and then you would buy services and goods from China and India. Mm-hmm. And then the U.S. abused this Super Bowl because instead of just saying, hey, we're going to get a lifetime of low rates, this is great. You know, we can, you know, we can, we, you know, people can buy houses, people can, you know, get cheap mortgages. Of course, that went too far, and it created all this leverage in the system, which essentially imploded on itself. And I think that implosion ended the super bubble, because what happens on top of consumers abusing it, companies abused it. You know, we had all these frauds at uh, major Wall Street brokerages and companies like AIG, and et cetera. And essentially, now with the global economy on, say, on the back of that super bubble, on the back of the U.S. economic expansion of the 80s and 90s and 2000s, uh, kind of uh, global economy coming much larger, now they can invest in each other. You know, if you're a Chinese businessman, you can go invest in India and make a lot of money, say, starting a hotel chain in India. Uh, if, if you're an Indian businessman, you can go invest in Africa or go invest in Europe or, or South America. So I think now we're seeing a move away from that super bubble system with more um, investment and trade going between other countries, like, say, between um, India and Sri Lanka, rather than, you know, both of those just buying U.S. bonds. So mm-hmm. that's essentially my basic thesis, was that the government debt and the, and the size of the government, you know, started with FDR, really got bad under um, Johnson, and then this accumulated itself and led to the super bubble, which occurred under Reagan and... Um, and, and uh, Clinton, which blew itself up with the financial crisis. And by the way, the biggest increase in private debt in terms of corporation debt occurred in the 90s under Clinton, and that was all part of this of the Super Bowl. So both mm-hmm. parties and uh, both all Republican and Democratic presidents have all been part of this Super Bubble system, which I now think is imploding. And to kind of make up for that, the U.S. is printing money because they have to make up for these funds that aren't going to pour into the country as fast as they used to. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly uh, in the enabler, the great enabler of money printing was the, uh, uh, was the detachment from the gold standard by Richard Nixon in 1971. I think you probably point out in your book, if I remember correctly, I, I, yeah, I'm sure you have, and I, and I know I have in many of my talks. If you look at the growth in the money supply, take M3 or whatever growth, whatever uh, measure of money you want to look at, it accelerated, started really accelerating. And what you point out with the, during the Johnson administration, the Great Society, the war in Vietnam, uh, he didn't want to tax us to pay for it. He didn't want to tell the American people it was going to pay, cost us anything. We're going to have something for nothing. That's the great political lie, of course. And, uh, <laughs> and, so, uh, and so de Gaulle said, well, give me the real money. Give me the real thing as, as we were floating more and more around the world. Nixon closed the gold window. And then you really find out that that's when we started having credit card availability massively, and I'm old enough, David, you're not, to remember when that started happening in the U.S. And we, uh, you know, and it was, and the acceleration is continuing. Now we're printing debt to try to cover over debt. Uh, and, and I just wonder how this is going to end. Now, you see it ending in a, in a hyperinflation, I believe. That's your, that's your belief. You may be right. Here's a question I have for you, though, David. 
you mentioned that debt is growing exponentially. And yet, yeah. if you look at the growth of income, it's growing in a linear fashion, if at all. So um, the, the question I have in my mind uh, is how can a country that has debt growing much faster than income uh, become hyperinflationary unless you get the money into the hands of the masses? Now, so far, what I see is the bailouts are for the rich, the bankers, essentially. And we had Ron Paul on here a couple of times. Ron shares your views that we're going into a hyperinflationary or at least into a very serious inflationary future. Ron says we have the mechanism in place now uh, that we didn't have in the 30s through the, uh, through, the, through the tax system to send money to the masses. But you know what? I haven't seen that happen yet. So far, what we have, the big, rich bankers get bailed out, so they keep getting their multi-million dollar bonuses every year. And, and, and they have money to speculate on commodities, and the prices are going up, and middle America is getting hurt because their living standards are declining. I see it that way anyway. But, uh, but do you see, David, do you see this sort of, uh, do you, first of all, do you believe it's necessary to get money in the hands of the masses and not just the rich guys? Because I think if Keynes had one thing right, it was a propensity to consume among lower income groups. They're going to buy their, the basic necessary things in, in order to keep alive. And you, keep, you keep giving money to the rich people, they will find, you know, they'll live, live in luxury. But do you, number one, do you think that there, that there is a need to put money in the hands of the masses to cause inflation. Uh, and number two, if you do think that, do you believe that that is in the cards? Um, I actually don't, and here's why. One thing I outline in the book is I think the cycle we're going through right now in the United States is much more similar to the hyperinflation in South America than it is to the 1930s deflationary depression. And what I note is that in the early 80s and late 70s, there was a huge amount of inflow of petrodollars from the Middle East, because the Middle East was booming because of high oil prices, that went into South American economies, into South American banks. Uh, you know, they built up, uh, you know, uh, uh, high-rises in, in Rio and uh, Buenos Aires and all these places. And then when oil collapsed in the early 80s, all of this money stopped and outflowed, and those economies collapsed in Latin America. And the response of the policymakers in Latin America at that time was much different from the 30s. Essentially, they printed tons of money to kind of make up for the fact that these dollars left mm -hmm. and that, you know, banks went under and the whatnot. And that created hyperinflation. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter if, you know, people at the lowest level were spending or not spending. Essentially, mm -hmm. they debased their currencies and there was runs on their currencies. So mm -hmm. that's what I see happening right now in the United States. Now, when I say high, now the U.S. is a much more advanced economy, so I'm not looking for a thousand and thousands of uh, percent inflation, but I consider hyperinflation anything over 20% a year. Because if you use, use the rule of 72, and the rule of 72 is anything you divide into 72 is compounded, is how long it takes to double in price. Well, if you have 23% pr uh, inflation, it means you are going to double your prices roughly, or 24%, every three years. And I would consider that hyperinflation. And that's what I think is going to happen in the U.S. Now, what makes it a little difficult to prove my point as an inflationist is the government's going to lie about the inflation numbers. Like I noted earlier, inflation yeah. is probably really 5 to 10%, and they're saying it's 1 or 2. So people yeah. are going to look at me and say, oh, there's no inflation problem. But I'm yeah. like, those government numbers aren't real. So, exactly. but, but I think at some point you're going to see an acceleration of inflation even more. Even the government will be saying it's at 6 or 7. It'll probably double or triple that. 
And All right, David. Uh, actually- uh, I, I, yeah, David. The only problem is we've, we're running out of time. We've got about a minute left, and I haven't even told people where they can get your book. So before we don't want to uh, forget that, tell people how they can buy the Great Supercycle because, folks, there's so much more that David has in this book. We haven't even scratched the surface. There's so much you need to to know that he has to say. We've spent an hour of time almost here, and we haven't scratched the surface. You've got to buy this book, The Great Supercycle. David, where can people buy it? Um, you can buy it at uh, www.addictedtoprofits. Or, or, sorry, you can buy it sorry, at Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. And uh, it, it's, in, it's in a lot of Borders and Barnes and & Noble's uh, stores. And Amazon.com, I think it retails for 20 which is $7 savings. And if you go to addictedtoprofits.net, I've got a link there on the site where you can, if you, with a purchase of the book, you can get a three-month trial free to my newsletter. So go to Amazon.com or Barnes and & Noble and, prick, and, prick, and uh, sorry, pick it up, and then you can get a free three-month trial to the newsletter to try it out. That's, Three months is roughly a $100 uh, price on my newsletter, so you're getting that $100 for a $20 purchase. That's a pretty good deal. Sounds like a good deal to me, folks. And I, I tell you, there's so much more I want to ask David about. Uh, talks about the fake bull market in Chapter 4. Talks about uh, you know where to invest your money, the, uh, the developing economies. India and China has a lot to say about it. Where is the gold price going? Where is the, when are we going to be, uh, when is the bear market and equity is going to be over? What about the real price of gold, uh, the, real, the real bull market and equities? Um, you know, we could have a bull market in nominal terms, but in real terms, these are many, many issues that we didn't get to. So you're going to want to buy the book, uh, The Great Super Cycle. David, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, so much more to ask. I have to have you on again sometime in the near future. Perhaps it's uh, really been fun talking to you. Uh, so uh, let, let's let's stay in touch and maybe get you on again sometime soon. For sure. Thanks, Jay. All right, folks, don't go away because we're going to be right back with Florian Siegfried. Florian uh, is a Swiss money manager who has done extremely well with his gold fund, one of the top performing gold funds in the world. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Florian Siegfried. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by western pacific is a gold exploration company focused on finding major world-class deposits in the western united states western's ace in the hole a project called mineral gulch lies along trend with the carlin style long canyon deposit recently acquired by frontier development catalyst going forward will be from drill results one drill campaign is underway at the south lita project in nevada with permitting underway to drill 33 holes at mineral gulch western pacific trades on the venture exchange under the ticker wrp 
Solid and Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding. listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Florian Siegfried. Florian is the CEO of Precious Metals Capital Limited. It's a privately held firm based in Zurich, Switzerland, that specializes in precious metals and mining investments. Precious Metals Capital has very recently been ranked by the Wall Street Journal uh, Europe as one of the leading top ten fund managers in the precious metals equity sector. Florian uh, was formerly CEO of Shape Capital Limited. It's a publicly traded investment company founded by Bank uh, Julius Baer and company uh, in Zurich. Florian uh, holds a master's degree in economics from the University of Zurich, where one of his studies was Austrian economics. He is a regular speaker at various resource investment conferences in Switzerland and in Asia. Welcome, Florian, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, Jay. It's a pleasure to uh, be with your show. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on. And we first met up in Singapore uh, a year and a half ago or so, and I'm sitting on the stage listening to your speech, and I say, my goodness, this sounds like Jay Taylor speaking up there almost because your views were so close to mine. I don't know of anybody else uh, that I know of um, that uh, sort of is as close as I am in, in, in my way of thinking. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it is what it is. So I'm really, uh, really happy to have you on. Uh, I'm sure that we'll be singing in the same choir to a certain extent. But uh, let's get started here with your view of the global economy. What makes you so bullish on gold? Let's talk about um, maybe. Let's talk. Let's start out with quantitative easing. 
Uh, in a talk you gave in Switzerland a few weeks back, you stated that QE2 is transferring liquidity from treasuries to gold. Can you explain to our listeners how you arrive at that conclusion? Um, yes, of course. Um, we think like QE2 program, the QE2 uh, program, like it is um, uh, done in the United States by the Federal Reserve, is nothing else than an accumulation of uh, government bonds uh, by the Fed uh, to create more liquidity in the system. And our concern is, um, from a technical standpoint, what is happening is the Fed um, becomes the dominant buyer, uh, in the case of the U.S., of um, longer-term uh, bonds uh, from the government. And this, by uh, the rules of the QE2, is already a change compared to the past, because in the past, how they created liquidity and how they set the interest rate was basically through short-term maturities. Mm -hmm. So now the goal of Bernanke and his crew is to maintain long rates at the lower end, and therefore the whole program is designed to buy the longer maturities out of the market. And we think you have two problems with this um, strategy in the long term. First of all, as you accumulate longer-term bonds, um, you have more and more interest rate risk in your balance sheet. And um, these bonds are more sensitive, of course, like um, shorter-term bonds. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. And secondly, we think when the market starts to anticipate that the Fed is basically buying all the bonds or a big portion, but since they can't sell it back to the market because where is the demand? We don't see anybody being really comfortable long-term position in government bonds when you compare it to the situation in Europe. We think the Fed will be stuck with these instruments in its balance sheet. And that makes an exit strategy virtually impossible in our opinion. So we think these bonds are accumulated and as a result the liquidity is withdrawn from the market and in a situation like now where you have a lot of uncertainty, people and investors, institutions, they prefer of course the highest liquid instruments. And I think the most recent example of this was 2008. You saw what happened in the crisis. Treasury bonds, they rise, and gold lost a little bit because the dollar went up. But you have clearly this move from illiquid items into liquid items. And as the Fed is now withdrawing this liquidity from the market, we think ultimately the liquidity or the investors um, will favor gold as the most liquid and unleveraged item. So in the longer term, um, just given the, uh, the announcement of Bernanke and his confirmation yesterday that he wants to proceed with the 600 billion in the QE2, makes us uh, confident that um, uh, gold will continue to rise in the long term, but we will have some pullbacks. I mean, that's a natural reaction when the dollar goes up. The dollar index has bottomed in November. It's now going up. So gold probably is going to be under pressure for uh, some more weeks. But uh, for the long term, as I said, we are very uh, confident that it will keep going up. Okay, so what we're seeing then is a transfer out of uh, liquidity ultimately from the bond markets as people 
uh, as people realize that uh, those interest rates on bonds don't match uh, a declining economy, a, decli- a declining quality of underlying assets, a declining quality of the U.S. Treasury because the U.S. is, is broke essentially, so that uh, there is the quantitative easing is really just papering over. So what you're saying is that the private sector will continue to exit out. Is there, even though rates are low, even though the bond market seems stable, uh, rates just don't match probably the cost of living, um, uh, inflation. Uh, and so the Fed will be buying more and more. Is that what you see? More and more of this gigantic U.S. deficit will be uh, will be funded by the Fed. And, and then do you see the possibility of the Fed owning virtually 100% of the U.S. Uh, of new U.S. debt? Um, <laughs> that remains to be seen, but I think in the long term they have no other options than printing more money. So uh, of course they will continue to buy more bonds, uh, you know, uh, all kind of instruments where there is actually no market uh, in a free market economy. Um, so we saw what happened in 2008, what kind of instruments they acquired in the balance sheet. So the quality of the balance sheet is deteriorating. And they are the lender of last. Uh, they are the lender of uh, last resort, and in this role, they will continue to uh, buy more. And you see the same situation basically in Europe with the European Central Bank. They have, since the Greek uh, crisis started last year in May, they accumulated uh, about 76 billion dollars in uh, government bonds, and. This is still a very tiny fraction of the overall refinancings of the European Union, of the the single governments. The total there, I would say, is probably more than 2.6 trillion uh, euros, Mm -hmm. uh, total outstanding debt. So now they accumulated 76 uh, billion, which is probably Mm -hmm. 2.5%, which is a very low ratio. Um, As especially in Italy, the refinancing, the rollover of credit is a big topic for this year, but also in Spain, the ECB will be here to buy more bonds. That's, uh, that's my view. But in the end, you see that it doesn't help. For example, the credit spreads, when you look at Ireland, you look at Portugal, you look at Greece or Italy, all these spreads versus Germany, they are now going up, and Portugal has a record uh, discrepancy compared to German bonds. And we think that the ECB will even more aggressively fight this um, kind of credit spreads to go to widen up. Hmm. But you see, if they already fail now with buying only three percent of the of of the outstanding bonds from the market and the spreads are already going up very dramatically, I wonder what happens when you have really the bigger countries uh, coming into play, like uh, Italy and Spain. Mm -hmm. These are much bigger economies. They have much more debt, and uh, the ECB is really in a very critical situation here because I think compared to the U.S., one big difference in Europe is a lot of the debt is held within the European Union, either by the banks or by the, by the government. So when you have one pillar that collapses, it could really uh, you know, uh, put a big danger to the whole European Monetary Union. And I think in the heart of this uh, construct, you have the ECB, 
And if they want to uh, make the euro survive, they will step in more aggressively. Well, Florian, it seems it's very interesting what you're saying because it seems to be that there is not a lot of confidence in the markets that the European Union will socialize uh, these risks, will will bail out all these uh, sort of smaller, more troubled, uh, credit-troubled countries. Uh, Otherwise, they would not be... um, there would not be this kind of spread between Portuguese, Greece, Spain, etc., their debts and the German uh, German debt. Is that right? Yes, I, exactly, exactly. I mean, I think that the rest of the markets, uh, that the market is essentially saying what you're saying, uh, is that, that these countries are unstable. Uh, and so you're saying 3% only uh, so far um, uh, is is in, in these instruments. So in terms of the bailout. So um <clears throat> what happens then but you're expecting that the uh, that the euro that the European authorities uh, uh will step in and will provide massive amounts of credit uh, the next time things head south and is there any doubt in your mind that they will head south in in places like Greece and Portugal and Spain and Italy? Um I think um you can't avoid a, a big haircut uh, in those um, uh, government bonds in the end. So my expectation is clearly that uh, you have these um, PICS nations, uh, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain, that they, they will default sooner or later. Um, because the debt in Spain, when you compare it to the U.S., total debt to GDP is about uh, 300%. And um, uh, again, here, who is um, uh, the creditor of Spain? Who is the creditor of Portugal? Mm-hmm. These are already these indebted nations. So it makes a very tricky situation out of uh, this uh, whole thing. And how they solve the problem now, um, uh, they uh, introduced this so called uh, Euro Shield, Euro Shield, mm. which is a temporary solution until 2013. And you see how they throw more credit in a completely overloaded credit system. Um, the Euro Shield is designed with 750 billion euros, whereas 440 billion are guaranteed by the 16 member states uh, of the European uh, Union. So when you see where do the commitments come from, like Spain has to commit 12%, France has to commit 20%, Italy has to commit 18%. So you have already countries which are hugely in-depth, and they create this kind of uh, shield to bail out themselves. Mm-hmm. It, it, it doesn't match for me. Those countries should have the possibility to, uh, to default, and that would be a proper haircut Mm-hmm. The market would clear out the excesses, but mm-hmm. it's not happening. It's prolonged, uh, and it will come, but later. That is my opinion. Well, that is the uh, that is the conventional wisdom of how policy should should react to these situations. It's a Keynesian uh, it's a Keynesian solution, of course, and it's uh, certainly not uh, what you learned in your studies in Austrian economics. That's for sure. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about credit deflation because I believe that's what we are having. We are. Uh, you, you know, they're fighting a credit deflation, as you were saying. If they would just let these countries default, the same thing could be said in the United States. If they just let the major banks decline, uh, those, those banks default, we would wipe the excesses clean. Uh, there would be a huge amount of losses by people that were gambling and, 
uh, expecting to get bailed out and took on risks uh, that were uh, that were nonsensical in terms of um, you know the housing market and other places. Uh, if we um, uh, if we just let those markets, if we let the markets clear themselves, I mean that's an Austrian concept, Florian. That's why you and I are on the same page on most of this stuff, is we we're coming from that viewpoint. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the credit deflation in gold. When most people hear the word deflation, they think that means lower gold prices. But in fact, you see uh, the ongoing deflation as being very bullish for gold. Could you explain? Yes. Um, I think, you know, by, by definition, uh, inflation, uh, as per definition, is an expansion of credit. Deflation is like a reduction of credit. And um, uh, this is still uh, our view. So what's going on is um, uh, by nature those credit markets will have to deflate, although they are maintained uh, now uh, by all these stimulus programs temporarily. But what, what's happening when you have a credit deflation is that, you know, when you are like a business owner, uh, and um, uh, you have lent money from the bank um, and you get into deflation, then basically what happens that uh, your product that you're selling, whatever it is, food or a car, these kinds of businesses, they lose in pricing power because prices come off and the margins uh, get squeezed. So the, the burden to service your debt is getting harder. So you need very healthy margins and a very healthy business to maintain as a creditor with the bank. So in gold, we think that's a very good situation for the mining companies because when you have deflation, um, you will look for liquidity and um, uh, gold again will serve this kind of need for the investors. So gold will maintain its role as money because people will hoard money in a deflation because they can buy more tomorrow than today and as gold is money it will maintain its pricing stability function and on the other side gold is probably going up on a relative basis compared to other uh, items like uh, commodities or labor costs because um, they have less pricing power and so for a mining company, that is probably one of the best scenarios you can have. It's basically the deflation, not necessarily inflation. Okay, so it's the relative price or the real price of gold that matters, uh, at least in terms of mining gold, which makes sense. I mean, it's always the case if, if what you're selling is going up relative to the cost of producing it or the cost of other items, obviously the markets will value your your product and your business very well. Um, you have had some very good performances um, at the Precious Metals Capital Fund that you operate. Can you tell our listeners how your fund is compared to some of the others, perhaps uh, one that I know well on, uh, well about because I've invested in it very successfully myself, the Tocqueville Gold Fund. Uh, I think you might have even placed ahead of them recently, but could you just give our listeners a view of how your fund has performed relative to others, uh, other gold funds? Um, well, yes, uh, we have been selected in the Wall Street Journal as one of the top 10 funds uh, uh, as per 2010. I would say what we try to do is uh, the whole mining sector and this especially uh, uh, mid-tier gold uh, sector is a very volatile market. 
And what we are trying to do is to take out the volatility of the sector by identifying undervalued companies where you get into a good situation where you buy basically gold in the ground, um, which is being revaluated over time as these, prog- as these companies make progress, um, as they move from uh, exploration into development and eventually into production. We think that these ounces get revaluated and there are always good opportunities um, to invest uh, in sometimes rather early stages, um, but at significant discounts. So what we do basically is um, we try to uh, screen the market for such uh, events, such companies which fulfill our requirements, which have the right people uh, on the board, uh, which have the technical experience, the properties which are in a good jurisdiction, which have the money. So all kind of different factors. And then we look where is basically the cheapest opportunity uh, where we can get into a situation which provides relative value opportunities for us. And um, then we basically have more uh, a buy and hold strategy. So we wait until the the progress of these companies uh, is uh, being discounted in the stock. And um, when we think uh, it has reached a certain level of certain valuation, um, uh, we prefer to exit or partially exit and then look for other opportunities. Uh, okay, so you you uh, are looking at the development. I guess you like to catch a uh, you like to own shares in a company as they are building wealth, as they are discovering gold in the ground, as they are starting to move towards a, a production or at least towards a uh, d- establishing a viable project for production. Is that right? Yes. We think the value cre- uh, is in this industry. The value is not created uh, in production; it's mm-hmm. basically created in exploration. Mm-hmm. So, wherever we uh, invest, we think a company that is producing has to has to explore. It has to create ounces, and it has to create good ounces at a cheap price. Uh, so, that is basically the best mixture you can get. Just having a good production scenario for the next three to five years is not enough uh, for us. Mm -hmm. So we look at companies which can develop uh, and can uh, produce and have also the capital to explore, which don't need to uh, constantly dilute uh, their shareholders because the capital uh, of the cash flow is not enough. So there are all kinds of different factors. Well, I think the most important is definitely uh, the, the team, the management, mm-hmm. uh, their track record, and um, uh, I think that is in the in the in the center of uh, how we select those kinds of companies. Mm-hmm. So, is three to five years your time horizon, generally speaking, for these investments? Um, we think yes. We always want to see a good scenario when we when we invest in a single company. We look into a situation and we ask ourselves. Uh, where is this company going to be in three or five years? It must be, is it, is it a takeover company? Is it a company that creates value by defining ounces, by exploring? That's also a valuable option. Or is it a company that is going from development into production or from exploration into development? But then, of course, you have all these financial risks again because um, you putting a project into production is uh, is very expensive. Capital needs mm-hmm. are very high. 
And then, of course, it becomes uh, another point. How can they raise this money without diluting um, their shareholders? Mm-hmm. Have they the capital uh, through the debt markets? Have they a project financing? All these kinds of questions are very important because we have seen many examples where you have good assets, good management teams, but uh, when the capital market is basically closing, um, those kinds of companies will not make cash flow. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so we think it is really a, a whole set of parameters that we have to put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, Florian, let me ask you, I would like to get your sense of where the market is right now. Uh, we've seen a pullback in the gold, uh, in the price of gold some. We've seen the pullback in the gold shares some. Does your fund um, sort of take a, a view of the macroeconomic uh, or the market situation and say, well, wait a minute, this equity market's getting a little bit, a little bit frothy now. Maybe we'll take some uh, cash, we'll, we'll sell some shares, we'll build some cash and look for a correction in the market. Is that something you might have done recently, and have you had some cash uh, to take advantage of, of maybe some better opportunities? Or, uh, that's one question. And the second one is, do you think that we're anywhere near uh, the bottom of this, this current correction? Um, yes. Um, well, we, have, uh, we like cash. We never invest 100%. Um, uh, at the beginning of 2010, for example, we were only 40 or not, excuse me, 60% invested. We have 40% on the mm. sideline. And the, the, the pattern we saw is that, especially in silver, in November of 2009, or most recently in November of 2010, the silver sector has really created a sell signal for us. It was mm-hmm. um, uh, just overbought, technically mm-hmm. and also fundamentally. Then, you had all these kinds of arguments which uh, pushed the silver price uh, even higher and uh, you know all the reasons why uh, silver is terribly undervalued compared to gold mm-hmm. so we thought um, this was a situation where we sold basically all of our silver exposure and um, the correction is now uh, going on yes we think it's not yet over it has some time to go but uh, on the other hand we so some stocks we have really uh, gave us some capitulation alerts. So technically they have been oversold. Nevertheless, we expect that the gold shares, silver has been correcting quite dramatically, and um, gold not yet. We think probably a 10% correction in the gold price and some more correction in also the gold mining stocks uh, can be expected. Um, but in the longer term, and we have the Chinese New Year coming in the, into uh, February, uh, it's getting just a little bit seasonality weakness for now, but then the fundamentals, uh, I think they're good for the longer term. Uh, that's excellent, uh, Florian. I, uh, we're going to have to take a commercial break here, and we're going to come right back uh, because there are so many more questions I want to ask you. Uh, so don't go away. You'll stick with us for a little longer, Florian, can you? Yes, sure, of course. Great, okay. Sure. Folks, uh, folks, don't go away. We've got to go into a commercial break right now, and we'll be right back with Florian Siegfried, who's got a lot more to tell us about some specific gold picks and perhaps some silver picks as well. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 